Our gospel lesson this morning is found in Mark chapter 5, reading verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we too marvel. We marvel that though our sins are many, your grace is greater, it's richer, and it's fuller. And we ask, God, that this morning that you would impress that upon us, that you would engrave that upon our hearts, that as we come to your word, that you'll speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. There's some strange ringing noises going on up here. I'm not sure you can hear them, but if somebody back there can help me, we'll get through this a bit better. We're continuing in our series on repentance, and we are in Psalm 25 this week. We've discussed that oftentimes in thinking about repentance that we've associated that doctrine with a moment in time, one decisive moment in which we have perhaps believed in Jesus, in which we've identified with him. We've seen while that's true that this also reduces down the doctrine of repentance to something less than is fully orbed and meant to be. That the idea of repenting and turning is not just something that is isolated to a moment in our lives, but rather is a movement. It's the entirety of the Christian life. It's a movement in which we are turning away from ourselves and yielding ourselves to God, in which we are denying ourselves, renouncing ourselves, and depending upon God. And so this morning we come to Psalm 25, 
a psalm that was used throughout the church's history as a confessional psalm, a psalm of turning from self to yield the self to God. In a sermon preached in Antioch in Acts chapter 13, the apostle Paul explains that David, the second king of Israel, was a man after God's own heart. And typically when we hear this commendation of David in his character, that he was a noble man, a man after God's own heart, we think that he was a, a super saint of sorts. And it's certainly out of our reach and that David was one who just simply lived above the fray somewhat different than us. But any real familiarity with David's life informs us that David was anything but that. That he was not above the fray and he also was not some super saint who lived in a way unattainable to us. But rather, David's life was much like your life and much like mine. It was a life full of trouble, trouble of every kind. For David, there were incredible uncertainties, moments of perplexity and anxiety in which he nearly buckled underneath the weight of them. And we find this recorded in Psalms that David wrote of incredible anguish and distress of heart as he met all kinds of situations in life. But he knew the uncertainties of life in this world. There were also adversaries, men and women who were aligned against him, those who did not share his faith or his commitments, some who even ate his bread and shared a table with him who yet sought to undercut him. He had adversaries and enemies. There was also his family, especially his sons. In their pride and in their ambition and in their lust, they were a source of great trouble to David. There were the nations around him. There were the rulers who were opposed to David, who didn't share his commitment to the true and living God. And they too sought to undermine David. And then, of course, there was also David's own divided and sinful heart. His divided and sinful heart that led to a series of sinful compromises and failures. And in Psalm 25, a psalm of David, he sums all of this up. He sums it all up in one word at the end of the psalm, and it's the word trouble. He there prays, redeem Israel, O God, out of all of his troubles. And trouble is the word that David uses there to refer to the trials and the temptations, to refer to the adversaries and the afflictions, to refer to the shame and the guilt that is experienced in life. It's a big, broad, all-encompassing word that's used to refer to the broken condition of life in a fallen world, trouble. And we understand this. We share in this trouble with David. And to be a person after the heart of God is to be a person not who avoids this trouble, not who, because of their own righteousness, rises up above it, but rather the person who in the midst of all of that trouble, of all that calamity, of all of that chaos, turns to God from that trouble and seeks to yield themselves to God. David demonstrates this response in Psalm 25. If you look at the opening line, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. And it is this lifting up of the soul, and the word there for soul is just the self. It's the inmost and most extensive self. 
to lift up yourself to God. That is to offer yourself to God and yield yourself to God. This is the turning away from our sinful selves to give ourselves wholly to God. And David leads us in the proper response amidst all the trouble of life that what we are to do is to turn away from ourselves to offer ourselves to God. And Psalm 25 then proceeds to lead us into what it means and what this turning involves. We see several themes interwoven throughout the psalm, and there's four in particular that guide us as to what it means to turn away from self and to turn to God. Four themes, that of seeking mercy, that of seeking refuge, seeking instruction, and seeking final deliverance. And this is what God invites you and he invites me into and as people who would seek after his own heart and who would know him, that we're invited into these four interwoven themes. And so we'll look at each of them this morning. First, we seek mercy. Now, on three different occasions in the psalm, David calls upon God asking for forgiveness. He seeks the mercy of God. And so follow with me in verses 6 and 7. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, Lord. And then in verse 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. And again in verse 16 through 18, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. He repeats himself multiple times, returning to this idea of confessing his sins and imploring God to be merciful with him. And David asks for deliverance from his past sins, the sins of his youth in verse 7. And he also asks for deliverance from sins of the present. That is the trouble and distress and guilt that he presently experienced. And to live a life of repentance is always to remember these two tenses. The sins of our past and the sins of the presence because it brings us into proper awareness of who we are before God. And you might ask the question, Chuck, why would I want to conjure up all the sins of my youth? Why would I want to dig down deep into all the guilt and all the things that are not going right in the present? Isn't this just dark and discouraging and dour? Isn't this the stuff of just self-righteous and man-made religion that's not really of the gospel? Don't we have enough discouragement? Do we really need to pile on to more? But friends, this is antithetical to the design of the gospel. Because what David guides us here into in Psalm 25 is that the design of the gospel is to take us into the darkness it is to take us headlong into the discouragement. It's to take us into the depths of who we are. To consider the weight of those sins of the past. To consider the guilt of the present. But it's also not God's design to leave us there. 
He doesn't take us into the depths. He doesn't take us into the darkness. He doesn't take us into the discouragement just to drop us off. But he would then consign us to that place. But it's in taking us into all of those depths that God then brings us to the end of ourselves. And that, friends, is the design of the gospel. It's why David three times visits the idea of confession, of calling on God for mercy, because he is at the end of himself, because he sees that he has no resources, no merits, nothing to commend himself to God with. And that is what God is seeking to destroy inside of you as well. He wants to destroy that human pride that wants to be able to put some claim upon God to put something in front of God in which we can justify ourselves with. And he wants to make that null and void, and he wants to bring you to the end of any of sense that you have resources that can accomplish that. And so David is seeking mercy. He's, he's forced to look outside of himself for rescue because he knows he has nothing to commend himself. John Newton, the Anglican minister, the slave trader who was converted, famously wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. He's not known as a great preacher, but a wonderful pastoral writer of letters and also a hymnist. In one of his letters, he writes this, the more vile we are in our own eyes, the more precious he will be to us. And friends, that's the truth of the gospel. And feeling all the weight of sin's past, of sin's present, of experiencing our vileness and darkness. It's only then that the gospel, that our Lord Jesus and all that he's done becomes valuable and precious. And so, yes, we are taken to that low place to seek mercy, that Jesus would be the one resource we have. And so, David, in understanding his sinfulness, he prays that God will not remember him according to his sins, but that God would rather remember his steadfast love and mercy. And this is the critical turn. David is completely, utterly, and wholly depending upon the grace of God. And this is what the life of repentance looks like. Turning away from the self turning away from being able to put a claim on God, turning away from trying to justify ourselves with God, and relying completely upon mercy and grace that is ours in Jesus. And friends, the great confidence that David had and that we can also share in is that when we turn to God in this way, when we turn with this humility, when we turn in this lowliness, when we turn in this contrition, that God's promise is always ours. In verse 8, David professes that God is good and upright. And what he is referring to is that it is this God who is good, and it is this God who is faithful, who will always keep his promise. And he's referring to the promise of God in his covenant to be forgiving and gracious, that he's abounding in steadfast love, that he's full of mercy. And friends, that promise is yours today through Jesus. Because God has sent him into the world, and he fully identifies with us. And he goes to the cross, and it's there on the cross that he offers himself in our place. And it's there that he goes down into death, and he's raised. And it's because Jesus has done these things on our behalf that we are no longer condemned for our sins as we look to him. That Jesus calls our sins his own, and our sins are condemned and destroyed. 
And so we look to him in faith, and we know that God is merciful towards us. And so we too pray, remember not my sins. Remember your abundant mercies. We join in this prayer. Newton again, and one of my favorite hymns that he writes, Great God from Thee. In the third verse, he captures it. He writes, thus though a sinner, I am safe. He pleads before the throne. His life and death on my behalf and calls my sins his own. This is the mercy of God. And this is what the repentant life is invited to seek. And so we seek mercy. Secondly, we also seek refuge. Specifically, we seek refuge from adversaries. Now, in verses 2 through 3, David mentions enemies, opponents. Oh, my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. There should be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Then further in verse 15, he mentions that his opponents have laid a trap for him, a net in which they're attempting to ensnare him. Now in Psalm 25, this opposition is never given a direct name. It's not spelled out exactly the type of jeopardy that he was in. And this is actually helpful. It's intentional. Because it's intentional for you and I to be able to relate to it in our own experiences of opponents and adversaries and enemies, those who seek to under, undercut and ensnare and traps in different ways that we can identify with the pain, the pain of betrayal, the pain of someone coming after us for no apparent cause. And for David, this ranges from personal enemies who were seeking to undercut him in Israel, and it also broadly refers to those who didn't share his faith and commitment to God. It's intentionally broad term capturing those who are against David and those who are also against what David stood for. And friends, this is the context of the Christian life. We have those who, for one reason or another, become opposed to us personally. And then we have those who also just simply don't agree and share our values and beliefs and stand against us as well. And so we find ourselves in this same tension And what's critical for us is to know how to respond to that tension. And we're being led in Psalm 25 to seek refuge in God. David responds by seeking that refuge. And follow with me in verses 19 through 21. He tells God to consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Then he makes the request, oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. And David does two things here. He turns to God for refuge and protection. He asks God to deliver him. But also at the same time, he entrusts his enemies, his opponents to God. He decides not to take matters into his own hands. He decides to not go exercise his own vengeance because that would be the attempt to overcome evil with evil. 
but rather David is seeking to overcome evil with good. Look at again what he says in verse 21, may integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Integrity, uprightness, this was David's defense. This was his response to those who sought to undermine him, those who sought to bring him to shame and to defeat, who sought to entrap him and ensnare him. Not to exercise vengeance, not to go out in retribution, but he would seek refuge in doing what is good and entrusting himself to God. And so in the life of repentance in which we're yielding ourselves to God, we recognize that we have no permission to go out on our own and exercise our own justice, that we entrust that to God and we give ourselves to Him in doing what is good and what is right. This week, I received a call from an old friend, and a decade-old injury had just resurfaced. And she was asking me the question, what do I do with this? I thought I had moved past it. I tried to put it behind me, but here it is once again. And she was relaying events in which someone had spoken untruths about her. It's unjust. It's wrong. It's clearly out of bounds. She was asking the very practical and pastoral question, what do I do in these circumstances? And there's some of the most demanding questions that you and I face in the Christian life. And we can look at Psalm 25's guidance, and some would say that this just leads us to passivity, that we're supposed to entrust ourselves to God and then just surrender in the face of injustice and evil. But that's not quite the case what's happening here in the Psalms or throughout the rest of the Bible. The issue is not whether we resist evil or not. The issue is what kind of resistance we offer. There is a firm and a strong resistance. This is not just simply passivity that's happening in the Bible. David's prayers are full of strength. And also we consider what Jesus says. In Matthew 5, Jesus is telling a series of, of, he's providing a series of examples in the Sermon on the Mount. And in verse 40, he says this, he says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. This little one line requires some context because the tunic was the undergarment. It was the garment next to the skin, the modern version of underwear. And so Jesus is telling a story as if a man had been taken to court by a merciless creditor, and they're standing there in front of the judge, and the creditor is suing the man for his inmost garment. He's literally trying to take the shirt off his back. He's going after everything the man has. But the man obviously would have also had a cloak. A cloak was the outer garment. This is the garment that everyone would see. It was your public face. It was actually against Jewish law to take a poor man's cloak. And so Jesus' advice to those who are being sued for their tunic was to go ahead and give them the cloak as well. Now, I'll let you do the math on what clothing that leaves. He's stark naked. He's there naked in front of the court. And this is the resistance that Jesus is instructing the man to give that he was to bring his opponent, his enemy, to shame 
for shameful and evil behavior. And so, yes, it's resistance. It's passive resistance. He's not retaliating. He's not exercising vengeance. But he's entrusting himself to God. And he takes up actions that reveal the absurdity and the evil and the injustice of the situation. And friends, this is what it looks like to entrust ourselves to God in the middle of evil and injustice. And so we turn to God for refuge. We ask God to deliver us. We continue in integrity and uprightness. We don't go on the low road. We stay on the high road. And we offer a particular form of resistance that brings evil and injustice into the light. But this is involved in the life that is lifted up to God, that's offered to him, is knowing how to respond to adversaries. Third, in this life of repentance, we also seek instruction. It's one of the strongest themes in Psalm 25. It's the quest for God to instruct, for God to teach, and for God to guide. It's particularly important to note because it's crucial to the life of repentance. The life that seeks God's forgiveness also always seeks God's instruction. Listen again, verses 4 and 5. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. Almost every word in the original language for instruction, for teaching, for guidance is used here in the psalm. A major theme. And friends, what we have to put together is that in the life of repentance that seeks God's mercy and turns away from self, that there is that request, it's the reflexive request that God would guide us, that he would lead us into all truth, not just simply that we would learn facts and collect knowledge in our heads, but that these truths would be impressed upon the heart. Because friends, we want to be like the garrison demoniac, healed by Jesus. And then where was he? Clothed and in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus. That's who we want to be. We reflect this even in the order of worship and the liturgy that we follow each week, confessing our sins and celebrating that grace and forgiveness, and then turning and pivoting to hear from God, to be taught by his word. Prior to hearing that word, we ask for God's help. That prayer of illumination is not just a filibuster. It's asking that apart from God, we will know nothing and we will be in darkness, that we're wholly dependent upon him to illumine our minds and to apply these truths. And so we seek instruction in the life that's lifted up to God. And finally, we also see in this life lifted up to God that we seek final redemption. Verse 22, once again, redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. It's important to note a shift here in the psalm. It's been a very personal prayer, first person. David speaking of himself in the singular. But then we have a shift to the plural and to the corporate. 
And so we have to ask what exactly is happening. And what is happening is that the broader conflict in which David's conflicts were a part is being recognized. See, you too have trouble. You have troubles that assault you, troubles that assail you, troubles that give you tremendous problems in life. We carry guilt and shame. We have adversaries. But this is all part of the larger systemic problem. It's the problem that was, our world was plunged into in Adam's sin. And it is that crisis in which our trouble is a small part. And so any life that's yielded to God and seeks to turn from our own sinful ways, that seeks to be taught by God, seeks to depend upon God, it recognizes that broader context, that we're not just absorbed with our own trouble, but we begin to long for the redemption and the relief from all the system that has caused this troubling world. And so we long for the redemption of all things. This is to cry out to God and look forward to that day. It's the prayer of the early church, the Maranatha prayer, come quickly, Lord Jesus, that he would return, that he would make all things right, that death would be no more, that war would be no more, that injustice would be no more, that evil would be no more, that human pride would be no more. That God would obliterate sin and that he would remove its scourge from the creation. That the creation would be free from that pollution. And friends, a Christian imagination, a life of repentance, is captivated by that vision of final redemption. It's drawn to it. Because no matter how much relief from distress we may experience in the present, we know that everything will not be whole. And everything will not be right until that great final day. And so in lifting up our souls to God, lifting up the self to God, we seek this final redemption. And so the way and the path of repentance, the life yielded to God, the life lifted up to God, it seeks mercy, seeks refuge, seeks instruction, and it seeks that final redemption. And so let's be those people who follow in David's steps. This is the type of person whose heart is chasing after God, who walks in this way. Let's ask for his help to do so. Father, we give thanks this morning for grace and mercy that's undeserved steadfast love and faithfulness that are ours through your son, Jesus. And despite all of our sins and all of our failures, past and present, those sins that are many, your grace is still more. And so, God, give us fresh awareness of that grace today. And may that grace lead us to entrust ourselves to you, especially with opponents and adversaries. Will we freely give ourselves to you and seek to walk in uprightness and integrity? And Lord, we ask that we would also be instructed by you, that you would lead us into the way of truth, that you write your truths upon our hearts, that you give us wisdom for applying your word in the real life situations. And Lord, we ask that you would direct us, that you would spring up within our hearts hope, Hope for that plentiful redemption of that day when our Lord Jesus returns and the sad things become untrue. 
work these things within us. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.